The reading is uh, from Genesis chapter 14. And you can find that on page 14 of your Bible. We're going to read verses 1 to 16. So that's Genesis chapter 14, starting at verse 1. At the time when Amraphel was king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, Kedoleoma, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemebah, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoah. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidon, that is, the Dead Sea Valley. For twelve years they had been subject to Kedoleoma, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedoleoma and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephites in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shava Kiriathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites, who were living in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zohar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidon against Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasa, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their food, then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Anna, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as, as, far as Hopper, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. And thank you so much for reading that for us. Tricky names uh, in there. What do I pray for us as we uh, come to look at this passage together? 
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. And Lord, we pray for us now as we come uh, to these verses. I pray that you give us insight into them, uh, that we would be, be changed, that we wouldn't just uh, understand them more, but we would be resolved to live for you uh, that bit more than this week ahead. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Everyone loves a good rescue story, don't they? Uh, you've, you've probably got a favorite book, a favorite film where there's a dramatic uh, rescue scene uh, in it. Uh, perhaps you've been rescued yourself um, at some point in the past. Um, I'm far too risk-averse to ever get myself into too much trouble, uh, but maybe, maybe you have. Um, maybe you've been a rescuer yourself. Um, I once helped my daughter get her legs out from a stairgate, uh, but I'm not really sure that, that counts very much. Maybe you've, you've been a more dramatic rescuer yourself. But I'm sure all of us um, in the past few weeks have been gripped by the events going on in, in Thailand. Uh, those, those 12 boys and their football coach stuck uh, in those caves in Thailand as the flood uh, waters rose. And that extraordinary rescue operation that was put in place to get them out, um, it was it was amazing, wasn't it, that, that combination of, of bravery and, and strategy that was needed to, to figure out a way uh, to get them all safely home. And they had to get this crack team, didn't they, of, of trained Navy SEALs who prepared to risk their lives to go in uh, and get them out. It was, it was gripping viewing, wasn't it? And I don't know about you, but, but when I kind of look as an outsider into a scene like that, I tend to react in, in two different ways. Firstly, I kind of empathize. I put myself in the situation of those who are trapped, those victims. I kind of imagine uh, what it must have been like for them underground for, for nine days, uh, just w- wasting away, bodies weary, hope kind of dwindling. Imagine what it must have been like for them, for their, for their families looking on, wondering if they were going to see their, their sons and sons again. Imagine the joy that they would have felt uh, when those first two British divers reached them nine days later. And then secondly, I can't help but just think a little bit about what it must be like to be the rescuer, uh, to think about those Navy SEALs and think what it's like for them uh, to go in and, and get those children out, what, what they must have gone through uh, to do it, and, and why they did it, why they were prepared to take such a risk. Well, tonight's passage... Uh, you would have noticed, is a, is a rescue story. And we've got Abraham going to rescue his nephew, Lot. If you were here last week, then you, you might have remembered in chapter 13 that, that Abraham and, and Lot had, had parted company. They were living together, but they were quarreling amongst their, their families and their employees, and they'd gone their separate ways. And Abraham had, had stayed faithful to God's promises, but but Lot had been captured, if you like, by the ways of the world. He'd, he'd, he'd decided to live more by sight than by faith. And he'd, he'd found a beautiful place, a bountiful place to live, but right near a town of Sodom, a wicked place, even at that point. So I'd love us tonight to, to get into the drama of this story, to, to think about how and why this, this rescue operation came about, and think about what it might mean for us tonight. So we'll have three headings as we, as we go along, and they'll be up on the screen. Three headings just to help us. A political battle, sin keeps spreading. A prisoner of war, 
sin's consequences continue. And then thirdly, we'll see the climax, a daring rescue and how God's grace remains. So firstly, uh, a political battle, sin keeps spreading. So every good rescue story needs a, a dangerous situation, doesn't it, to set it up. And that's what we get in these first 11 verses of the Bible passage that we had read for us. It's essentially a kind of a summary of a military campaign in the ancient world. There are loads of tricky names here, lots of kings and cities that are kind of unfamiliar uh, to most of us. Um, So I found maps helpful this week to try and understand uh, what's going on. I like maps, and maybe you do too. So here we go, and let's see if this works. This is quite exciting too. Um, Oh, is this going to work? Oh. Right, technology. Um, Elam on the right, that is where you've got King Kerdaloma. He's the, the kind of head of this whole area of five kings that kind of stretches over to Goyim and that uh, northwest kind of section. That whole kind of area right there is it's known as the Fertile Valley. It's a, it's a rich, abundant place. Um, and... Um, it's, it's where the world of Mesopotamia was, and out of this kind of same area, you've got the world of Babylon. The Babylonian Empire grew out of the same place um, centuries later. So this kind of coalition of five kings held dominion, uh, sorry, four kings. They held dominion over five kings in the south. So you have the Dead Sea. We've kind of zoomed in on it. And I know it's quite small, but you've got these five kings of, of Gomorrah, Sodom, Adma, Zoar, and Zeboim, down in the south, below the Dead Sea. You've got five kings there. And you'll notice Sodom and Gomorrah. They've cropped up before, and they're going to come back to them again. So looking at these maps this week, it made me think of the game of Risk. I don't know if you've ever played that game before. I love, I love board games, but I've got quite mixed feelings about the game of Risk, I have to say. I think it was the first time I played it when I was a student, away on a retreat, um, and playing with, with a chap who worked for, for our church there. He was a wonderful, godly man, helped lead me to Christ, but the most competitive man you will ever meet. Unbelievable. And I remember playing it with him, and, um, you know, I, I was new to the game, and every time I made a move to attack him, he'd say, are you, sh- are you sure you want to do that, Matt? Are you sure you might, you might be better off just attacking some of the other, other people? Uh, might have a better chance of, of winning. Okay, all right. So I'd attacked other, other, other territories. And then after a while, I, I was getting nowhere, obviously. And I thought, right, I'll just forget about it. And so I attacked, I attacked John and went for it. And obviously what happened, I was wiped out of the game completely. That was my last experience of risk. Um, and actually, that's kind of what we've got going on tonight, a little bit like that. Um, you see, we've got... Um, uh, where are we? We've got... Um, these five kings in the south, and they're, they're dominated by these four kings in the north. And they, they've been paying tribute to him. They've been paying their taxes, giving him the spices, the, the precious jewels that he demands. For 12 years, they've done that. And then in the 13th year, they rebelled. 13th year, they'd had enough, and they stopped doing what they'd been doing before. And they joined forces in the Sidim Valley, at the base of the Dead Sea, which you can perhaps just make out an area just below the sea. And so then in the 14th year, the armies in the north, uh, let's call them the empire, 
Uh, They mobilize their troops and they head south to fight the five kings. Let's call them the Rebel Alliance, just for the sake of uh, ease of understanding. And as all successful empires do, on the way down to to take those five kings out, they decide to pick up a few other kingdoms on the way. You'll see that in verses 5 and 6. You see, they went down and they picked off the Rephalites in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shaveth Kiraithim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, near the desert. They make their way down the east side of the sea and go far below it, picking up some more territory. And their tactics were excellent, because what they did by, by coming below the Valley of Sidon was that they could come back up and attack from the southwest. So the five kings, they'd, they'd set themselves up, expecting an attack from the northeast. And when the four kings arrive, the five kings were unprepared. They had no chance at all. And you'll see what happens in verses 10 and 11, if you look down with me. Now the Valley of Sidon was full of tar pits, And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. So the four kings routed the five kings, sending them running to the hills, and many of them getting stuck in these tar pits. These these tar pits which, if they'd attacked from the route they were expecting, would actually have been a, a defense mechanism for those five kings, but instead they become their own downfall, getting stuck in them. And so the empire, they plunder the rebel alliance for all they're worth and set off on their way home. What, what are we made to, to make of this war report? Because in some ways, this battle, this setup, is incidental to the meat of the story. All of these kingdoms here are living without reference to God. It's a bit like that moment in Jurassic Park, if you've seen the film, where you've got a, a pack of velociraptors and then suddenly a couple of T-Rexes come in and grab them. It's a bit like that. But I think there are a few things for us to pick out from, from this conflict. Firstly, this is the first war that we see in the Bible. So if you were here a few weeks ago, this is just ten chapters on from Cain and Abel, one man taking the life of one other man. And suddenly here we are, we've got kingdoms, we've got warfare. This is what we see. This is the spread of sin. This is land grabbing. This is political power games, self-interest coming through. This is the world we live in now, isn't it? So the first war in the Bible. Secondly, I, I think these details show us the truth that the his, these are historical events. This isn't a, a kind of allegorical fable for us to, to learn some lessons from. These are real kings. These are real empires that existed in the ancient world. And they give us an insight into what was going on at the time. Good for us to understand this world. And then thirdly, it's helpful for us to see that the majority of the world were against God. They were against God. And they were doing so without realizing in the main part It's interesting that the land that these four kings end up conquering was the land that was promised to Abraham. So in in a sense, they're unwittingly going against God's kingdom plan for Abraham here. So that's the state of the world as we see it in Abraham's time. But what of God's people? What of Abraham and Lot? Well, we find out in the next verse. Let me get to our second point in uh, the next verse, 
So verse 11 says this. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abraham's, Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. So we see Lot, as well as the loot, are taken away by the four kings. So Lot, in a sense, becomes a prisoner of war. If we think back for a moment to, to Thailand, to those caves. So in hindsight, I guess you can say it was perhaps unwise for the coach to lead them in there. But there's no way he could possibly have known that they would fill with water as quickly as they did and they'd suddenly be trapped. No way he could have known. Certainly no way that those boys could have had any sense of what might have lined ahead for them. But what of Lot? How is it that he has ended up being collateral damage in this conflict? Well, if you remember, at the end of chapter 13, which we looked at last week, Lot had pitched his tents near Sodom, this, this wicked town, this land of debauchery. Well, here we find him in chapter 14. He's moved. He's moved from living in tents nearby. And now he's right at the center of the city. He swapped his tents in the suburbs for a townhouse in the city center. So Lot has, in a sense, decided to settle down amongst that corruption and the godlessness around him. He's brought his family there. And here he is, taken away as a prisoner of war. I think there's a couple of things to think about for us from what Lot has done here. Firstly, how do we make choices in life? What drives our decision-making? Because did we see that Lot's problem here was that he chose to live by sight and not by faith? Back in chapter 13, he made the decision to move away from Abraham. All the promises that God had given to him and his family, all of his descendants... He chose to take the things he can see now rather than trusting God's promises of God's blessing to come. Making the wrong decision, it can have disastrous consequences, can't it? It'd be easy now to talk about to Brexit, to talk about whose idea it was to have a vote to leave the EU or not. We're not going to do that. Uh, we could talk about the Titanic, why they didn't test it properly, why they didn't have enough lifeboats. But what about us? What about you and me? There are loads of things, aren't there, in life about that we, we have no choice about. We can't choose um, who our work colleagues are. We, we can't choose where we grow up, where our families take us on holidays, things like that. Lots of things we can't choose. But sometimes we have decisions that we can make, and they can have a massive impact on our spiritual well-being. We can make decisions where maybe sometimes we think, yeah, maybe there's, there's danger lurking there, but it'll probably be fine. It'll probably be okay. And we go ahead anyway, don't we? So maybe you think, maybe I'll get a new job. Maybe you look at this new job and you think, wow, this, it's going to be longer hours. It's going to be more time away. It's going to be a bigger salary, but I'm not sure about the ethics behind what they do. But, but never mind. I think maybe this will be a good thing to pursue. Or I don't know, maybe you're looking for a new house, maybe you're, you're house hunting, and you think that, that new flat looks great, doesn't it? It's in a great location, got all the mod cons. But what about the housemates you'd be living with? Are they people who are going to help you live out your faith? Or are they going to be people who might lead you astray? 
There are tons more choices we can think about, aren't there? We can think about relationship choices, how we use our time, how we spend our money. Lots of different things. I'm sure there'll be things popping into your heads. Choices that we make that can have a big impact down the line. But the problem that we've seen right the way through Genesis with sin is that it doesn't do, it'll probably be fine. It doesn't do that. Sin only leads us one way, and that is away from God. So that's why we've got to try our best to make the right choices. So how do we make choices in life? And then secondly, if we're here tonight and we're a Christian believer, are we living lives that are distinctive from the world around us? Are we being distinctive? That, that again, I think, was part of Lot's problem here tonight. He'd become just another face in the crowd in Sodom, and so he was dragged off with everyone else. How about us? Same kind of questions. If we were to pop into your office or see you at, at school, would it be obvious that you were different from other people? Not getting involved in the gossiping, the, the backbiting that goes on, keeping your language clean and so on. What about if we were to visit you at home? See how you interact with your friends, your, your family. If we were to have a look at your watch list on Netflix, would it be different from anyone else's? How about if we came with you on a night out? Where would we end up? How much would we end up drinking and eating? Again, could go on, different settings. Are we being distinctive where we are? Listen, I'm, not, I'm not saying that we shouldn't make the most of the good world around us. God has made a good, wonderful world for us to enjoy. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying that we shouldn't enjoy life. But do we see from these verses what's happened to Lot is that his affection for God had become compromised by his desires for other things, those things around him. And they'd become to, to control him, to dominate him. I think it's good for us to ask those same questions tonight. Are we making the right choices? Are we being distinctive? But that's not the end of the story. That isn't the end of Lot's story. Because God is always bigger and stronger than all of the mistakes that we could ever make. So we come to our final point. The climax of the story. A daring rescue. God's grace remains. So we've seen what's happened to Lot. But what of Abraham? Let me read verse 13 again. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Anna, all of whom were allied with Abram. So this was a big film that you're watching, a big battle scene. The camera now cuts away. It pans to Abram. And we get a vastly different picture where we see the difference that it makes when you keep living out your life by faith and not by sight. See, Lot has been subsumed by the world in Sodom, but Abraham has kept trusting in God's promises. We saw back at the end of chapter 13 that Abraham had gone to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. So back on, back on our map. And we see that Abraham is to the, to the west of the Dead Sea, Hebron, brackets, Mamre. That's where Abraham is living at this point. And notice how he's not properly settled. He's still living in, in tents. He knows that the blessings of land and people and descendants, that's all to come still. And at the end of 13, we also saw that Abraham had built an altar 
to the Lord. So Lot had built himself a house. Abraham had built an altar to the Lord. And now we're back in chapter 14, and you'll, you'll see that actually living faithfully to God has had an effect on those around him. It's actually drawn other people to the Lord. Did you notice that? You see, he's, he's a man of such good standing in Mamre that he's formed an alliance with three families in the area, with Mamre and Eshkol and Anna. And they're all living in peace together. That's the effect that Abraham has had living faithfully to the Lord. He's drawn people to himself. And then suddenly, into that scene, we get this messenger who comes in. He's escaped the fighting, presumably someone who knew Abraham and Lot. And he's come to tell them what's happened. Lot has been taken away. How does Abraham react? What does he do when he hears? Well, without hesitation, he makes a plan to rescue Lot. He forms a small army, and despite, despite their split, despite Lot having gone his own way, made his own choices, Abraham has no ill feeling at all. He only has love for him. He only has desire to rescue him. And he's able, because of these relationships that he's got these people around him, he's able to get a small army together, 318 trained men. And so Abraham's cause becomes their cause So 318 men, it's a pretty decent-sized army, but it's clearly no match for King Kerdalama. So it's not quite Mission Impossible, but it's clearly a high-risk attempt that he's going to need to make, isn't it? So he makes a strategy. He splits the men into different groups, and he attacks from more than one side, and he uses the cover of darkness to, to act as surprise. So I guess these two things combined... It's probably helped to to give uh, a sense that his army was much bigger um, than it really was. And it would have thrown them into chaos. So you've probably seen enough battle movies to picture the scene now. You can imagine people running everywhere, little battles, torches in the night. And then you've probably got a, a hit squadron, a bit like those Navy SEALs, maybe headed up by Abraham himself, who dive in, find where Lot is, and get him out. And so Abraham's nighttime raid is successful. And he drives the invading army back, verse 15 says, as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He drives them well away. And interestingly, the point he drives them away to is the northernmost point of the land that has been promised to Abraham. Interesting little point to note. It's kind of the ultimate get-off-my-land moment, isn't it? And so, verse 16, he recovers all the goods and brought back his relative lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. It was mission accomplished and accomplished in full. You see, it wasn't just Lot and his possessions he brought back. He brought back all of the women, all of the other people as well who were with Lot. It's a fantastic, dramatic scene, isn't it? Exciting stuff. But what are we to learn from Abraham's nighttime heroics? Well, I think firstly, it's good for us to learn from Abraham's example. It's great to learn, isn't it? Abraham here, he shows no regard at all for himself or his well-being. His love for Lot is the driving force in how he acts. He straight away reaches out to help those in need. And I know that in myself, when I see others in need, I think my willingness to help is often checked, at least 
in part by, by weighing up whether it's worth it, whether it's worth the effort to myself, um, particularly if there's any risk or cost involved. And when someone has got themselves into trouble of their own making, well, maybe they're getting what's due to them. There's a bit of that going into my heart, I know that. But Abram has none of that at all, does he? So it's good for us to learn from this kind of self-sacrificial love, this proactive love. So it might not be that we come across people in physical danger like this. I hope it doesn't happen to us that we come across people like this. But it might be that we come across people in in practical assistance, maybe some way we can help them. Perhaps we know people who are in spiritual danger. Perhaps they're caught in sin. Perhaps they're, they're drifting a bit like Lot away from God. Are we prepared to maybe risk a friendship, risk a difficult conversation, even for time, just to draw people back to faith? It's a great example for us, I think, of someone to emulate, definitely. But next week, actually, in the passage we'll look at, they make it clear that this victory that Abraham brings about, this rescue mission, it's God's doing, ultimately. Verse 20 makes that clear. Praise be to God most high, who delivers your enemies into your hand. It's God that is the ultimate victor here. And actually, that ultimately points us to another rescuer, doesn't it? It points us to another man who is not only a perfect, faithful man, but also God himself. God himself who came down to rescue a people who'd been overtaken by the world. It points us to one who would be the ultimate rescuer. One who would fulfill all of those promises made to Abraham of land and people and blessing. And actually one who would ultimately pay the greatest cost to bring that rescue about. I love, I love songs in the Bible. You might not be surprised by that. I love songs in the Bible. One of my favorites is uh, in, um, in Luke's Gospel, where we've got Zechariah, who father of uh, John the Baptist. He's rejoicing in the news that he's going to have a baby. And he's rejoicing that his niece, Mary, is going to give birth to Jesus the Savior. And he sings this great song. And there's part of it on the screens. Far too small. Let me read it. He sings, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Just, just think back for a final time to those boys in the caves in Thailand. Imagine how those boys must have felt when their rescuers first appeared, when those two divers came and that possibility of being set free first came to them. Imagine how they feel now, back in safety, and how their whole lives will be shaped by what happened to them. Forever thankful to those who came and rescued them. That one, one guy who gave his life in the rescue mission. Their lives will be forever affected by that, won't they? The Lord Jesus, he came to rescue us, for you and me, from our enemies. He came to rescue us from the sin, from, from the world, from the devil. 
and its consequences, death. He came to rescue us, and he did it by holding his eyes fixedly firmed, held fixed, firm, uh, held firmly fixed on the joy that awaited him. He kept in mind the promises to him as well, living in the land of glory with his father, knowing God's eternal blessings with his people again, that fulfillment of those promises to Abraham. This is what our God is like, friends, tonight. That's what we've got to see, ultimately. This is what our God is like. One who would give everything, pay the greatest cost to bring us safely back home with him. And if you're not a Christian tonight, if you're not someone who called yourself a believer, do we see that, do you see that that is what God is like? Someone who would love to rescue you too. I said back at the start that when I see a rescue uh, operation like that in Thailand, it makes me think a couple of different things. It makes me empathize with the victims, but it also makes me imagine what it must have been like to be the hero. Here tonight, isn't it? It's good for us to think about Abraham, the hero, one who kept on living a life of faith amongst the wickedness of the world, and one who, because of his great love, he was prepared to risk his life to bring him back. It's great for us to look at his, his heroic example and learn from him. But it's right as well as we finish, isn't it, to, to see ourselves in lot, to see our tendency to, to wander away, to live by sight and not by faith, and to see our great need for our, a rescuer ourselves. Abraham too, he was far from flawless. We've seen that already in Genesis. We'll see it in weeks to come. But it's encouraging to see in the New Testament, both of these men, Abraham and Lot, are counted as righteous men, ultimately, because they both ultimately knew their need for a rescuer. So that's where we need to fix our eyes this evening. We need Jesus' sacrificial, dramatic love to keep delivering us day by day and to help us to serve him in faithfulness amidst the temptations of the world around us. That's what we need as we leave here tonight. So let me pray that God would help us in that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you for this passage. We thank you for this dramatic rescue that Abraham will deny himself because of his love for you and for his nephew, that he would be willing to, to put himself into great danger to bring him safely home. And we thank you for that pointer to the Lord Jesus, for the great sacrifice he made to bring us into relationship, bring us into safety with you. Lord, help us to live in the light of those things this week. Help us to live lives of faith in a world that does not know you. And help us to remember our great need for a rescuer day by day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.